This is the Mailbox Money Podcast, and I am Bronson Hill. As a busy professional, I wrestled with how to grow my income without taking up more of my precious time. I learned that managing real estate, actively trading stocks, or being unable to scale up investments is not passive investing. This is the place where you'll discover new asset classes, develop investing skills, and learn from experts how to become financially free with less work than you thought possible. And now, get ready for truly passive income. All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to this awesome event we are doing. So why don't you stick in the chat there where you're coming in from, and uh, or if you're watching this on a recording, okay. really happy to have you here. Okay, we've got Buck. Got everybody coming Great. in. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right, so we'll go ahead and get started. We've got a, a full room here, and we're just going to jump right into it. My name is Bronson Hill. I'm the CEO of Bronson Equity. We have about 200 million in multifamily assets. Uh, we're doing deals. We have a bunch of stuff in Jacksonville, Florida we're working on. So if you're not on a deals list, you should check that out. Also check out Buck, Ken, and Michael's uh, deal list as well. Get on their investor club. It's going to be great. So wanted to just give a quick introduction what we're going to be going over tonight. We're going to jump right into it. We are going to do some Q&A at the end. And it's going to be awesome. So I'm super excited, super pumped about it. So we've got in the house today, we've got Ken McElroy from MC Companies. Welcome, Ken. We've got uh, Michael Blanc from Nighthawk Equity and Buck Joffrey from The Wealth Effect. So really excited to have you guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And I love getting people in the room like this that are really, really smart. We can have really high-end conversations around really great topics. So this topic today is with real estate. You know, as, as an investor, there's a lot of confusion, right? Everybody's confused. Should I, should I buy more? Should I hold? Should I wait? The confused mind just says to wait, but inflation is high. So what should you do with your capital? Let's talk a little bit about that. I'm just going to kind of go around. Let's start with Ken. Uh, what are you seeing right now in the market? What are you seeing from retail investors? What do you think it's important to look at right now? Well, there's no question that things will slow down for us. Uh, I mean, we were talking a little bit before the show. I think all of us have experienced the same thing. There's been multiple reasons and it's been no surprise. The one being interest rates. So I'll just give you one example. We had a hundred and, you know, it's called low hundreds billion in, a, in escrow on a deal and we're in due diligence and interest rates adjusted. And uh, it adjusted so much that our interest payment went up so much that our cash flow went down and we had to pass. So what's happening is these interest rates, this is one thing, of course, I'm sure these gentlemen here have lots of stories like that, but we, you know, expenses are up, property taxes are up, labor's up, materials are up, utilities are up, interest rates are up, cap rates are up and rents are up. And there's only one good thing actually on that whole list and that's rent. So, uh, you know, it's a weird time, but with all of that, we're still finding cash flowing deal. That's a crazy thing. Some some sellers are adjusting because they have to, you know, uh, you know, the three of us here, we're pretty much underwriting similar deals the same way. And we're, we're trying to get cash flow for our investors. And so if the cost of debt goes up, then we have to lower, we have to offer less on the price. And so that's what's happening right now. And so there's this push pull going on in the market with brokers and uh, buyers and sellers, you know, and that's slowing things down. Great, thanks, Ken. Michael, what are you seeing in the market today? Yeah, it's it's you know there's three options with real estate: you can buy, hold, and sell, right? And we're seeing a little bit of a, a combination of that. We're we're selling while we're trying to buy, which doesn't make a lot of sense 
uh, to the outside, but we've had such a run up in values over the last 18, 24 months that we're recognizing the returns that we had projected five years from now. So we're like, shoot, should we hold on to this or should we simply uh, return the money with a return to the investors, right? So there's people that are that are selling and there's people that are selling because they're afraid of what's coming, but most have been selling because of this thing that I just mentioned. The question becomes now, should one buy, right? If you're a seller, why would you be dumb enough to buy something? And and so, for example, we're selling a, a deal right now that one of our peers is buying from us. And like, well, who's the bigger fool here? Like, you guys are a bunch of idiots. But I'm always fascinated to see kind of what other people are seeing. And I'm I'm generally bullish on on multifamily in general. But the underwriting has changed, kind of like it did right after COVID. And I think that's what's creating the problem right now. I can't use bridge debt like I did before. Okay, maybe I can't use. 12 year fixed rate debt anymore. So what debt am I going to use exactly? And how should I underwrite this? How can I try to forecast what's going to happen with interest rates, uh, possible recession and vacancies, right? So, and then there's the expectations of, of, of sellers that, that Kenny just mentioned, sellers quite haven't caught up yet to the changing market. And we saw that in, in COVID as, as well. And it took a little while for the sellers to go, oh, the market has changed. If I still want to sell, I'm going to have to readjust. And so on the buy side, that's what we're finding. We're having trouble finding the right kind of debt and the seller's expectations are still what they were in March at the, you know, basically at the, the height of the possible market. And so that's making buying a real challenge right now. Right. Yeah. Buying is definitely a challenge and uh, people want to sell and there's, you know, a lot of, you know, concerns on what people should do. Buck, what are you seeing right now? Anything you want to add? I think, the, you know, um, the markets are volatile, right? And, and uh, trying to find a new normal. And I don't think we're there yet. And as the guys have mentioned, cap rates um, have not, you know, appropriately adjusted for the most part, given higher rates. They certainly have decompressed a little bit, but certainly I don't think to the level that they would need to in order to sort of, um, uh, you know, and be a parallel. So, you know, selling in this scenario, I mean, is, as Michael alluded to, especially these properties that, you know, we've had for two, three years, where we have a ton of equity on, uh, sounds like a really good idea. And we're, we're really interested in that. The problem is that on the other end, there needs to be buyers and there isn't nearly as many buyers as there were, you know, six months ago. And why aren't there buyers? Because as I think someone else alluded to, the lending markets are really challenging. So buyers have to make the deals work too. Fannie Freddie's got uh, very low leverage. Uh, the private, um, you know, the private lenders, uh, you might, you guys might have experienced uh, their, their spreads from SOFR were ridiculous. And so it, it may makes it very hard from the buying end. So, you know, my feeling is that you know, over the next year, we're going to be a net seller. But I think the issue is really about, you know, trying to find opportunities uh, for, you know, when, when the lending markets come back, hopefully we'll be able to uh, do more. But right now, uh, you know, we're kind of just feeling things out um, and seeing who the buyer, you know, and in terms of buying, I think I would just say that, you know, there is always an opportunity, right? Like, it's just a matter of waiting. We used to have opportunities all the time. We just don't have opportunities right now. And it's because they're not penciling out. Um, so I think everything's just kind of slow. And I think, um, you know, I think the, I think that the market is trying to understand what the new normal will be. It just, it's not there yet. So it's interesting. Um, 
you know, as somebody who wants to, our group wants to buy more deals, you're, you were saying it's getting harder to buy. I mean, we're having to raise, you know, twice as much money and, you know, because of the LTV putting more down on a deal and, you know, the interest rates are higher and then those interest rate caps are getting more expensive too. So the cash flow is just going down in a deal. Um, Kenny, I wanted to ask you, how does, how do you see this playing out? Obviously it seems like the Fed is just raising rates just perpetually, continually. And is, is there a point where, you know, I guess rents continue to go up because the cost of ownership goes up, but is there anything that you see where that changes? Either they stop raising rates or it kind of stabilizes out or valuations come down. Like what's the natural progression of how that plays out? Well, if I knew completely uh, specifically broad time, you know, I, I would uh, have a great couple of years ahead, but here's what I do think. So I, I have taken a position and I've done that publicly on my YouTube channel, you know, the Ken McElroy official and that's, I, I talked about a couple investor blind spots uh, in, in two videos that I think are really important. One of them has to do with this. And, um, if you look at Powell, he, uh, the, the chairman, he, you know, he's been really clear that their target is 2%. He's been super clear. That's been his narrative every single time, even the recent one in Jackson Hole that he said, he said, our target's 2% inflation. Okay, well, as you know, it got up to 9.1. Now I think it's 8.5 or 6 or something. But so it did come down a little bit. But that's been with a lot of interest rate uh, increases, you know, back from March all the way up to all the way till recently. There's another one this month. Um, and then there's another one in November. So I believe that, we're, you know, we're going to see a half point to three quarters of a point. Uh, I think it's the 20th or 21st of September. I think uh, if hopefully inflation comes down into the sevens, maybe. And then I think we're going to see it again in November. Um, but it's going to take a while, you know, as, as this rolled out, it's going to take a while to roll back. And that's not necessarily going to be good for people holding on to bridge debt or floating debt or anything like that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's going to, it's going to slow the, the real estate industry way down. We're seeing it in single family. We're seeing it in, in our spaces, you know, and we're sitting across all lines. And, and so I think that he's, he's willing to put the economy at risk to get that inflation because inflation affects everyone. Whereas interest rates only kind of affect, you know, the people that are using, you know, I guess money, you know, to buy things and, and, um, okay, and, and or they're in debt. Let me challenge that a little bit. I, I don't think you're wrong. I think for planning purposes, you have to assume that. Otherwise, you'd be irresponsible. Yeah. But if you look at the pattern of the Fed over the last, since 2000, what happens every time there's a massive crisis and, and recession, what do they do, right? Quantitative easing. They reduce interest rates and they print money. It's worked so well the last 20 years. Why would it not work, right? So I, again, from planning perspective, I'm with you. I, I, don't, I think it's irresponsible to assume that rates are going down, but from a practical matter, I think it's exactly what's going to happen. If there is a, a deeper recession, we're kind of sort of in one right now, but if a deeper one, people really start losing their jobs. I don't know. I think the Fed's going to wiss out. That's just my opinion. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, I, you know, I think what the, this whole, uh, the world has changed a little bit, right? And, um, but I do think that the tone from the Fed is different uh, and that I am more, uh, you know, I'm more suspicious of, of them being uh, really uh, dovish, even if there is a recession. Uh, I think it's important, you know, Sir John Templeton's quote that the three, you know, the most dangerous uh, words in the English language for an investor are that this time it's different, right? Yeah. 
And so just to, so I think that from an underwriting standpoint, I think you really have to take the Fed at its word. I'm not saying, Michael, I don't, I, I completely agree with you on the pattern, but I also think that there's enough, um, you know, we're talking about things that happen like COVID. I mean, what else are you going to do in COVID, right? Um, what else are you going to do in 2008? The banks are in good shape right now. There is no fundamental, like, you know, situation where, like we've had where there was a massive injection necessarily. And so I kind of think that they are ready and willing to see some pain. Yeah. And I think that is different from before. And, and just to clarify, I mean, we're kind of, we're just kind of having a good time with the Fed here. From an underwriting perspective, I wouldn't change anything. Like I, I'm with Canon, what you were saying, you know, we're assuming interest rates in the seven, eights, possibly nines, right? And, and so when we, and we're, we're underwriting for a recession, that's one reason we can't buy anything right now. And, you know, on the other hand, I don't, I'm okay sitting on my hands for a little while, frankly, I don't have a problem with it. I just observed over the, over the years that there are people who are very conservative and as a result, they never do any deals and you can't be too conservative, but you can't be too aggressive. You have to be realistic and, and finding that balance. That's the problem right now, right? That's the problem. Cause you don't, you don't want to go to too far to one side. The goalposts are moving too much right now. That's though. right. I think that you can't so quickly. I think that, you know, to your point, I, we don't, from a, from an acquisition standpoint, rates fundamentally being high doesn't affect our business plan, right? The idea is that can we create the delta uh, from buying to disposition that we need to? The only way we can feel confident about that is if we've, we are in an environment where we have more confidence in where the goalposts are going to be. The question follow up to that, Buck, and I guess just for all of you, um, you know, inflation officially 8.5, 9.1, whatever it is officially, unofficially, it could be as high as 15 to 18%, you know, whatever it actually is, you know, we don't exactly know. But I mean, is it a point where they just keep raising rates and do they raise them to, you know, six, seven, eight, nine or higher percent? And does that then bring down inflation or is that something that we still don't inflation could still be high because of all this new money creation that happened? Does anybody have an opinion on that? First of all, if you look at what happened in the 80s, now it's tough to compare where we are right now with, with the 80s in many different respects. But one of the things we have in parallel is that we had very high inflation. Now, the CPI was measured significantly differently back then, but Volcker raised the rates up to like 18 percent after and 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 it came down then he lowered it again and he went back up and he raised it back up again so he's really trying to so 18 percent interest can you imagine 80 percent interest right now like is that what's required to get inflation under control and and here's here's why i think the fed can't really do anything about inflation because it can't raise interest rates much higher because unlike in 1982 when our debt was just under a trillion now it's 30 times higher exactly. we have 30 trillion dollars in debt so a three percent so for rate, and now we're at we're two and a quarter, something like that. 3%, if I looked at the numbers right, would make debt service the single biggest government expense after everything, including defense spending. So how high can we go? Can well, we go we to three? Yeah, we can go to three. Can we go to four? At what point is the debt service weight to the government so heavy that they can't go and won't go any higher and that the wheels will come off, right? And so this is why I think the Fed can't do jack about inflation. Uh, I had an opportunity to talk to a, a, a former Fed official um, who essentially said that the cap is going to be three and a half to four, that 
beyond that, there's a sovereign debt problem. Mm, wow. That's interesting. Really? Yeah. Yeah. A Fed said that. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Or a Fed official. Ex-Fed um, official. Ex-Fed official. Yeah. So I have, I have a question on this, and this came up earlier too, because coming back to multifamily. So 85% or so of debt is bridge debt that's out there. Now, a lot of this debt is starting to roll over in the next, you know, whatever's happening now, the next six to 12 months, a lot of deals are selling. Um, I know, Ken, you've been in this a very long time. What do you see? Are you seeing some people are going to go through some serious pain that are operators, or maybe they have bridge debt and they're having trouble rolling it over, or maybe the interest rate caps themselves, there could be any sort of problem with the insurance people are buying for the caps or any, are you seeing any issues with that? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I just wanted to point out when, you know, I've been investing since 2000, actually before that on a smaller level, but on a bigger level, you know, this is our 20th year in business. And um, the, the federal fund rate then was 6.25. So, you, you know, the math has to work in all aspects, right? The only thing that's happening is we've been spoiled with these low rates and, you know, now everybody's freaking out and trying to figure out how high they're going to go. Uh, I just want to say that the market functions quite well. Um, you know, from 2000, 2005 was a nice little run too. I was buying during that time with these higher rates, um, you know, and so back to your question on the bridge. So yes, we've done some, you know, the obviously, as we all know on the call here, but I'll just explain it. If you're going to do a cash out refinance, you lean toward bridge because you want to capitalize on that value add that you're going to get. And the prepayment is really low with the bridge debt. So therefore, you're taking that interest rate risk for that short period of time. Um, and then if you're buying something that doesn't necessarily have a value add, you put more of a fixed rate debt on it. But your prepayment's a lot higher, but at least you're hedging your interest rates. So the markets, as you guys have known, have had a lot of bridge debt in them over the last several years. And so I actually think this is going to be a problem for many people. And there's a couple other things. I don't think it's just a bridge debt issue. I think that it's also an equity issue. So there's a lot of equity that wants their money back. So if people that people that got money from big institutions private equity, institutional equity, family office, whatever it is, um, that is behind that money. And I won't go into the waterfalls and how they all work, but you know, that, that money is usually out three to four years. And so you have that, you have that, that issue where that, you know, their equity partner is gonna want their, their investment back. So they might be forcing a sale. And so that's the first trigger and I think you know, like if you're partnering with a big company, they want their money back next year. Uh, they don't care. You know, they want their money back. And, and then you as a sponsor is behind all of that. I think that's a big problem, especially if you have rising interest rates, because um, they're going to want, um, you know, and so what could happen is a lot of these sponsors that have that use that kind of money uh, are sitting out there three, four years ago. Uh, they might not get anything other than fees from when they originally raised the capital got the deal. And then you have the bridge debt reset. You know, the interest rates are going to reset. So the cost of debt's higher. But the other thing that's higher, Bronson, we're seeing, we're seeing higher um, renovation costs. And we're seeing all kinds of higher things. And we're seeing higher cap rates. So depending on where you are around all of that, it could be when, when your property is, you know, let's say, uh, you know, getting ready to market. You, if a, if a if a cap rate goes from four to five, let's say, which is not very far from what has happened, 
that's 20%. So you might get all of that through your NOI growth, but it might immediately be lost through that, you know, through that cap rate going up a little bit. So you have all these factors at play. And I think that, uh, that uh, properties that are, are, don't have a lot of reserves and don't have really good relationships with their equity are gonna be in trouble. So, and of course that could be, that could be property and property. It could be within the same company, you know, it just depends on the deal, um, not necessarily the sponsor. Yeah, thanks Ken, that's great. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's really interesting. There's these very inflationary factors such as all the money that's been printed, you know, rents are rising, but then you have all these deflationary or just cost disinflationary things where costs are, our um, valuations are, are coming down. So it's interesting. So I guess in light of all this, um, what advice do you have to people? Because if I'm an investor, I've got 100K, are you telling me I should invest it or should I wait? Right? Like, what do you, what do you think? And obviously, we're not giving anybody specific advice, but if you were depends telling on this the deal, thing, depends on the deal. <laughs> I mean, yep. if there's, you know, if there's a, an opportunity and there's distress and there's an opportunity to, make the numbers work, then I don't, I don't, I would definitely would not uh, shy away from that. I think, I think I would be suspicious of uh, any company that was not slowing down a little bit right now, though. Um, I think that, you know, that it's going to be a deal to deal thing. I think it's more important in, in any time before to really educate yourself a little bit more and and ask some some hard questions and really look at the assumptions. I mean, I have come I've come across deals from other syndicators and they're, you know, saying all the right things. You're like, "Really? How can you make this assumption or that assumption?" And yes, the returns and what I'm saying is don't just look at the returns. I can make my spreadsheet say anything I want. What's behind the assumptions? Right? So debt is has always been important, right? Well, what kind of what's the business plan? Does the, does the debt actually match the business plan, right? What's the current market environment, right? We're kind of going bridge debt. Hmm, we sure would love to, to, to use it, but I don't see how, right? So if someone's using bridge debt, maybe they got a cool product. I don't know about it. I'd like to know about it. But you had to really look at the assumptions and really ask uh, uh, how is the operator mitigating various different risks that are vastly unknown. So in this kind of environment, if I'm underwriting a deal, I want multiple margins for error. So I want everything I'm doing, I want a, a pretty wide margin for error, which of course means that I can't buy anything, but rent growth, vacancies, interest rates, all these things, I, I want, because I don't know, right? Because you, because Buck was saying that the goalposts are shifting so rapidly, I don't know. So I need, if I'm going to buy something, I need a really wide margin for error. So my advice is anyone doing a deal, multifamily or otherwise, you know, what are the margins for error? And I, I like, Buck, I wouldn't shy back from investment, but I would want a margin for error bigger than than probably two years ago. Well, the other thing, the other thing is that in terms of leverage, I mean, maybe using less leverage uh, if there's a an appetite for that, because obviously it affects return profiles as well. And we've certainly contemplated, you know, going into uh, opportunities with uh, less leverage than we typically do. That's the other issue. Uh, the one one easy thing that uh, LPs can do, I think, Bronson, is to simply pull the business plan out and ask the sponsor where they are and go through the, the detail. You know, are you here with your CapEx? Are you here with your, your interest rates? Where are we on the expenses? Where are we on, you know, delivering uh, renovated units, that kind of stuff. I know, you know, we, we have six ground up construction deals too. And, um, 
you know, we're we're getting our butt handed to us on construction costs. And mm. We're seven and a half um, percent over on one deal, uh, and that's a lot of money. You know, it's a it's a sixty sixty million dollar deal, and and so you know, we're basically um, sending a letter to the investors saying, hey, you know. Uh, I mean, my partner Ross and I put the money up, so we're not cash calling anybody, but um, we're, we're, you know, you have to be that kind of transparency back as a sponsor. And not all of them will be, you know, some of them might not even know, you know, so you, you gotta, it's simply just pulling the business plan out and, and, and saying, hey, you know, these were the assumptions. I know that they might not all be, uh, you know, true and accurate, but got to kind of draw a line in the sand at some point, but where are we and where are you? Um, and, uh, and, and just open that dialogue. You know, I, my frustration, one of my frustrations is um, a lot of our LPs, um, they don't ask very good questions or any questions at all. And, and I actually want them to, and I, 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 I mean, I know these gentlemen here and I've spoken at some of Buck's uh, events you know, he's out there, you know, we're out there educating our people, trying to tell them what's up. Um, not everyone operates that way. So I, I think it's important that, uh, that, that they start asking questions on the deals that they're invested in, and then they'll get better. Um, they'll, they'll ask better questions on the ones they're going into. I really liked what was shared. Uh, Michael shared this and you as well, Ken, just asking questions and really like Warren Buffett's principle of the margin of safety, right? Having a margin of safety in what you invest in. And on the construction side, it'd be interesting to see what margins of safety, obviously there's there's a little less margin to kind of start with, but there's a lot more upside too. Like in Jacksonville, currently we're buying stuff at $1,000, or excuse me, rent is $1,000 a unit. And we're seeing like a 57% upside after a $6,000 renovation. So there's a lot of, upside that just, you know, if rents, if they can slow down, at least we've got some kind of margin there. Obviously we still have some interest rate risk and other things, but um, Michael, what are some other things that you're seeing that, uh, you know, investors maybe should pay attention to, or that they should, uh, you know, watch out for? You know, I, I think we need to talk about expectations, right? Because, uh, you know, you go in there with a business plan and the last 24 months, it, it came out vastly better than we had projected. We're like geniuses. Okay, now maybe we're, we're heading into a time where the business plan that we hatched 12 months ago may not go quite as we planned. Construction costs are higher, right? We have, we have, we're not doing ground up construction, but we're doing pretty heavy construction on these, uh, on these things. And, um, and then we have interest rates creeping up. So all those things are going are to squeeze cash position and cash flow, right? So we're like, man, maybe the business plan is not going to go the way that we thought. And I think I think uh, investors need to be flexible. We're all, I think we're, we're all really happy when things are going better than planned, but given the environment, we may have to just, you know, lower our expectations a little bit and ask ourselves a question, where is the best place for my money right now? Okay. Is it the stock market where we're in the same place we were last year, right? Is it in cash? Well, maybe, maybe that's not bad, but we're losing 10, 10% every single year right? Is that the best place? I know maybe we should put it in crypto, which is clearly an inflation hedge. And so as an investor, you can ask yourself a question, where are you, where are you going to put your money right now? And, and every asset class is challenged in some way. I think multifamily is going to come out ahead, but it may not match the projected returns we maybe had a year or two ago. Uh, Buck, I know you bring a lot of economists on your show and you're just one economist after another. Um, with that same kind of what Michael was saying, 
what are some so what are some other choices or would you say still this day i've got money to invest it's burning a hole in my pocket mm-hmm. i can wait but at some point i need to deploy it somewhere what are some considerations that you would look at well you know one thing that you can sort of borrow from stock investors is this concept of volume averaging and if you uh, and you know we're internally we're talking a lot about um, you know opportunities to move on deals where we have significantly less leverage than we we typically do. Um, you know, every one of our pro formas uh, showing always shows, you know, 17 to 19%. We've dispoed, uh, uh, you know, an average of 30, over 30% in the last 34 dispositions. But I mean, we had a lot of wind at our back too, right? So um, I think the challenge uh, for me is to try to get investors on board with the idea that, hey, you know, this pro forma may not show 17% IRR. Uh, It may be closer to 11 or 12. And if we do better than great, but we're not going to lie to you. Now, one of the challenges with investors is I think that you, uh, you know, once, once you start getting big returns, it's, that's kind of what the expectation is on an ongoing basis. Um, with real estate in particular, there's a, a couple things that I think to remind investors of. It's, it's in terms of a hedge to inflation, multifamily, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Maybe self-storage where you're changing your rents, you know, once a year, as opposed to a commercial property that's got like a 10-year lease that's, you know, escalating at 2%, something like that. So um, I think a little bit of education is is really critical, um, you know, and I, I think you should expect that from your sponsors. Um, Ken, what I, I want you to talk a little bit more about rising costs because it's affecting not only new construction, it's also affecting people, you know, doing value add or looking at just getting labor and help. Um, do you see that changing if, let's say, in the next six months, we really start heading into a recession? Will demand just all of a sudden go down and costs are all of a sudden cheaper? Or do you think we're just kind of at a new normal now with just the cost of everything being more, labor being more, and there's really no going back to at all what we were before? So well, so we have $68 million in renovations right now. Um, and we have six ground up projects uh, all in the 50 to 70 million range. And, um, you know, so we're seeing, uh, you know, they're very different, obviously, as you can imagine, but uh, we're not seeing the operational labor costs going down anytime soon. I'm talking about the renovation guys uh, on that piece. We're actually still having some issues on the supply chain for you know, things like washers and dryers and dishwashers and microwaves and paint and, you know, whatever it might be. It's, it's month to month, project to project. It's been that way. It's kind of the new normal for us. I don't particularly um, see it uh, being solved anytime soon. On the new construction side, actually, things are normalizing for us a little bit more. Um, where, you know, we're hiring, a, let's say, a framing company or a drywall company or whatever, uh, we have had some issues on getting some of those things, uh, including cement. Um, and so we've had delays on time. Uh, and less, like I said, we haven't had a higher construction costs, but <laughs> I, I mean, we have also had massive run up in value. So, you know, the property that we're building, the one I mentioned, uh, is 
40 million more than we projected it would be. So, and uh, now that's not realized, of course, until you sell it or refinance it or whatever, but that's the appraisal. So, it, you know, it's, you know, so if you can, you have the cash and you're managing it and you're, and you're being transparent with everybody, um, you can say, listen, it's got up a lot more, but our costs are up a lot more too. Um, and I think it's the same way with renovations. So, you know, maybe what was 10,000 a door might be 12 uh, as an example, but 12 times a thousand units is a lot, you know, or 2000, you know, dollars times a thousand units is a lot um, unless you've got it in the rent side. So I don't see it slowing down much. I think on the, if it does the new construction stuff, it's starting to settle down a little bit for us, um, but we're still uh, having some issues on our uh, one-off renovations. Michael, I wanted to ask you, you help a lot of people get started doing their first deal, kind of getting going. A lot of people are either operators or interested in being operators. Maybe they're are listening to this or watching. Um, I guess if somebody's new, how have things changed when it comes to your approach? If you're trying to find deals or you're trying to raise money, how are you seeing that, especially for people that are new, kind of getting going in this? You know, we, the market has changed so much over the last three years. It was super steady since like 2016, 15, you know, just super steady. And the market through COVID changed so rapidly. And so that really confuses people. And so the, the question is, how, how does that impact people trying to get started or us trying to buy? And, and I think right now it's really two things. One, you have to adjust your underwriting. And, and so you have to adjust your underwriting. So for example, when, when COVID hit all of a sudden, we got a, a lower LTV, uh, bridge debt went away. We had to put a bunch of money in escrow for it. Well, that's, that was new. Like, okay, well, I'm going to put that in my underwriting. All of a sudden I can't buy it for the same price anymore. Now the price is lower. Well, sellers are like, well, then go pound sand. All right, so you have to adjust your underwriting. Number one, and 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 you have to you have to know what's going what's going on. You want to be as as uh, uh, you have to sharpen your pencil, but you also have to be realistic and 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 conservative. Number two, especially when the markets are changing so quickly, you it, you I think the people who are doing deals. We did two deals after COVID, was to educate the seller and and the broker in the process. Why can't you pay this much anymore? Well, let me tell you what changed in the underwriting. Let me show you the underwriting. And now this, in our opinion, has accelerated the seller coming down off their off their price. Like we're we're selling one right now, and the March, of course, was was a high point, the highest prices in, in in the history of prices. And you know we were wanting to sell, and so we are selling probably 20 percent below that price, which sounds like a really really bad thing to do. But we have so much appreciation in the deal; it's like an IRR of like. 50% for the investors, it's ludicrous. And so why not, why not sell, right? So there are sellers out there. I mean, not everybody, but there are sellers out there that if, if we educate them, if you as a buyer, educate them about how your underwriting just changed because of what the Fed just did or here that deal, I think your probability of getting a deal done uh, is, is higher. But, but again, at the end of the day, while you change your underwriting, you don't compromise your criteria, right? You're, you're still putting in margins for error, you're, you're, you're still trying to serve your, your investors, right? So you can't compromise your underwriting, if that makes any sense. You have to adjust your underwriting, but don't compromise it. That's good. That's good. Yeah. And I've noticed too, um, we have seen some discounts at the register when we're coming to close, right? And we used to call it retrading and now it's, it's kind of not as bad a word as it used to be, right? Being able well, to say, still hey, pretty, still pretty bad. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, it depends, I guess, who you talk to. I know we've talked about it before with Kenny on this on this panel. Um, Buck, talk to us just for a minute. We're going to take some questions in a minute. So if people have any questions, there's a Q&A uh, and there's the chat. If you could put it in the Q&A section, then we'll start going through and answering some questions. But I just wanted you to touch base on uh, just really the impact of inflation that you see on real estate valuations. Um, you know, again, is it in inflation, obviously, you know, in general, things cost more. So rents are going up, costs are rising. Uh, that's obviously a plus side if you own real estate because it's causing things to go up. But with interest rates rising, do you think that if the, if the Fed or if the government just continues to print more money, then it just continues to, that do valuations, does that balance out valuations a little bit to where they, is, is it positive enough where it causes them to rise more? Or is it just that as rates rise, you can't really win that battle? Well, let's, you know, I guess a good place to start is, you know, what exactly is the Fed doing, right? Um, you know, the impact of rates don't rise in a vacuum. They rise because there's an attempt uh, from the Fed to rein in on uh, inflation. So remember, multifamily is, uh, again, as I said earlier, you know, one of the best hedges to inflation that exists um, because the Leases typically are year to year. Uh, it allows for rent adjustments quickly. And I should point out, and I don't know, uh, I'm curious on the other uh, panelists' experience on this. We haven't seen a significant slowing at the level of the renters. Like we're still raising rents, no problem, which is again suggestive of, well, okay, inflation's still a problem. So rates probably going to still go up, right? Um, but the impact on inflation on valuations, uh, again, listen, the inflation and interest rates are intimately linked. Rates go up in response to inflation uh, to curb inflation. Presumably, in, if inflation is high, your rents are getting higher. And if you you stay on top of operations, you you might be OK. And so I think uh, that's, uh, you know, that's one thing um, in terms of the valuations, of course, you know, this goes back to what we've all been sort of talking about is that there is a um, disconnect between buyers and sellers in general right now uh, in terms of the interest rates rising because of inflation. Uh, you know, that's what's making it very difficult to find a deal that works because the cap rates, although they may have slightly decompressed, they really, uh, really have not decompressed uh, probably what what would be more appropriate, at least as of yet. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate that. Um, we are getting some questions in here. I'm just going to start rattling through these. Uh, this is for Ken. Um, how do you determine an exit cap rate when you're looking at properties in this environment? Is it is it in general ten to twenty basis points per year, or how do you how do you evaluate that in general? Ah, uh, it's a great question, actually. So I think, uh, well, a couple of things when you're raising, uh, if you're raising money and you're showing a lower cap rate, you know, to Michael's point earlier, you could show anything you want. Um, so we're not seeing lower cap rates. We're seeing cap rates gone up at least in the last, you know, many months. So um, what, what we've done is we're, we're actually modeling it out a few different ways. So we're quarter, half, uh, even a full point just to see, uh, you know, of course, we're, we won't know uh, where they are. There's, there's, uh, I think there's a couple of things to, uh, 
uh, with your sponsors too, is, is that if, uh, you know, we're not really net sellers, as you know, Bronson, we're, we're really long-term holders. So, so I've owned properties for 15 plus years. Um, I'm on my third value add on some of them, <laughs> you know, uh, first I watched rates go down, you know, each time it made me look really good. And now they're going up a little bit more, but we, we just did a big, uh, cash out refi on a property in San Antonio, 680 units that I've owned for, 10 plus years. And so, you know, I look at things very differently than, you know, trying to time a cap rate in years three or four. Um, you know, we, these are long haul. We're, we're trying to, and I think a lot of us are trying to provide that coupon, you know, to the investor, you know, that, that monthly you know, cash flow. And then when time's appropriate, then we'll go harvest that money. Uh, you, you know, uh, Taking chips off the table is good, like Michael said. Um, you know, you you, uh, you don't lose money taking a profit, and so you know you should you should be doing those kinds of things, whether it's a cash out refor, re refi or even a sale maybe to a ten thirty one or something. But for us, we don't really have capital gain issues. So um, now uh, you, you know, so if it's an IRR you're looking for, and that's typically institutional. Um, you know, very different than what we do. We're, you know, I'm, I'm more of a passive income, long-term cash flow guy. So we do pay attention to those and we have to have them in our business plan, but we're often wrong. You know, I mean, they're either higher or lower. So, but we do try, we're, but I can tell you one thing, lenders and private equity guys are not allowing exit cap rates at lower than what you're buying. That's for sure. That does not exist. I think a good rule of thumb is a 10, 10 uh, basis points per year, right? So for the five-year five year holder, half a percent higher. Uh, I would be very cautious of investing with anyone who has a cap rate equal to or less than. That makes no sense. However, having said that, we did some sensitivity analysis on our last deal. And we said, hey, what if inflation and interest rates would go up in lockstep? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent Now, of course, inflation, let's say rents go up by the same amount, but also your expenses, right? So they're not going up in a vacuum. And your interest rates are going up in lockstep. What we found was the IRR was exactly the same at every single level, right? And, and, and the reason is because your inflation is just driving up rents, but your costs are getting higher because of interest rates. So that gap apparently is being held exactly the same. So in that environment, uh, the cap rate is going to stay the same because investors are getting the same return. Therefore, there's no reason to adjust the cap rate. Now, but what's happening, what has happened, I'm not saying it's going to happen, is that the inflation and the rental growth has been much greater than the increase in, in interest rates. There, that's, why, that's why the valuations have been so big over the last year, specifically. Now, what's going to happen moving forward? I don't know. You know, are rents going to go up another 20%? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe they only go, maybe they only go up 10%, okay, which is vastly higher than the 2.5% that we were using like 18 months ago for <laughs> forecast rents. It's true. Meanwhile, you know, meanwhile, so the rents are going up at 10%, and let's say interest rates are at an ungodly 7%. There's still a gap there, right? So if I'm looking at it from that perspective, I don't see cap rates moving at all. The reason they're down right now is because they ran up so much in March. People were like so frothy, and then the market corrected, right? And, and, and so anyway, so fundamentally, I don't think cap rates are going to move. Potentially, there's even argument they can go down a little bit further, but to me, uh, you want to project higher cap rates. Just it's just safer. 
Um, thank you, Michael. Just, just a heads up for everybody getting some questions. This is being recorded and it will be sent out as a replay. If you signed up for it, it'll also be on YouTube. Uh, this is a follow-up. So we got Drew Niffen on here. Uh, shout out to Drew Niffen. He's asking, Buck, um, you mentioned that the Fed uh, official or the former Fed official said that rates cannot go above three and a half to 4%. Is that the Fed's fund rate, the 10-year treasury or SOFA? Or what, what, what was that in reference oh, to? That would, that's the Fed rate. Fed funds rate. Okay, great. Um, do you, and here's another question. This is just for anybody who wants to answer it. Do you think that lenders will potentially start loan modifications like they did for single family rentals in 2008 or even short sales? Do you, do you see there being, I guess the question is, is there distress coming in single family or, in, uh, or even in multifamily? Well, I kind of think that distress is, I'm surprised we're not seeing more of it. <laughs> I don't know what you guys think, but I mean, it, it seems to me that, you know, the costs are, costs are going up and, and there's a lot of people who got into the real estate game over the last couple of years that weren't necessarily putting in the work to create value and really watching those properties closely. Um, so I, I actually think that, you know, there's a, there's a pretty good chance that we will start seeing some uh, distressed sellers and, um, and so, I mean, that's, I guess, from a, from a buying perspective, that's something to look forward to. Thanks, Buck. Uh, this is from Christina. Um, Christina Suter, uh, please explain how you see cap rates moving as the cost of money is increased. Will they continue to compress because the housing shortage or RE being real estate being a commodity or will it decompress because of the sheer interest pressure? I think we just, we just talked about that, Bronson. We just talked about it. Okay, got it. Um, Let's talk a little bit about financing. What are some things that you're seeing changing in financing? Are you seeing, um, I think, Ken, you had mentioned, um, you know, obviously bridge debt. There's a lot of people in bridge debt. There are other alternatives, agency debt, maybe even HUD loans. Are you guys looking at other alternative debts beyond bridge debt? Well, we're, well, first of all, the, the number one driver for us is, is not recourse. So, so that's the first thing. So yeah. yes. uh, if, if it goes to recourse, then we just say no. So that's just my own personal philosophy. I, I've seen market cycles take out people with recourse debt. So just from personal experience, I've seen that. So, so that's number one. So we're, we are just in that box only. And I think, um, but there's a couple of things on that cash out refi deal I mentioned earlier, the lender um, after we got it all buttoned up and we figured out what we we're going to do, they, they threw in two things. They threw in a, um, an interest rate reserve, which was very smart of them, I believe. So basically they just said that we had to put so much on high ground for interest rates uh, to hedge that bridge uh, over time, but they held it. Um, and a um, rental reserve in addition to our budget. They had a rental reserve. And this is a CBRE capital markets. So, um, you know, you know, so we're seeing that. And then on the stuff we're trying to buy, I don't know about you guys that we haven't actually talked about this yet, but you know, we're seeing fifty-five percent uh, loan to values. You know, that's it. Um, and I mean, you can step out of those products and go um, with something different. But again, getting back to that recourse, non-recourse piece, we're just I would rather have more equity on the deal um, and more reserves and, and um, uh, you know, than the risk uh, uh, without them. Someone asking, uh, you know, I'm a college student. Is this a good time to get started in multifamily real estate or what should I do to get started in real estate? 
I have an opinion on that. You know, it's yeah. never a great time to get started. Therefore, it's always a good time to get started, right? I mean, don't try to time the market. It's a, it's it's basically impossible. Uh, what I like about multifamily in general, which is why Kenny's still sitting up for 20 years, is that it's it's the best performing asset class alongside with, you know, a, a self-storage and mobile home parks in almost any market. <clears throat> it's su super lucrative in up markets. And the downside is it, it performs very well in down markets as well. So if you like the strategy, then figure out how to get into that strategy. And like I said before, the only thing that's different, if the strategy stays the same, the only thing that's different is the underwriting, right? That's really the only difference. So figure out how you have to adjust your underwriting to get into a deal. And we talked about that really before. So that's kind of my, my advice. Time to get started is now. That's right. There's that old uh, Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time <laughs> is today. So um, question here, somebody's asking specifically, uh, I have seven rental properties, which are paid in full. Would it be a good idea to refinance some and go purchase other properties? Uh, what do you guys think about that? Owning properties out. I imagine these are single family or small multifamily. You own them outright with no loan. Is that a good idea or a terrible idea? Well, I always think that, you, you know, I, I'm of the philosophy, you know, there's the Dave Ramsey court, you know, which you shouldn't have any debt at all. Um, I think it's, you know, you know, all of our whole portfolio. So we're right around 2 billion in assets right now. And we're right around 62% leveraged. So we're low, uh, we're, we're considered low leveraged. And, and um, uh, I don't have, even during COVID, when everything got shut down, we took a look at our stress test, which is basically debt plus expenses. You know, what's our break even occupancy? We're fine. And so I think there's a spot that you're, you, know, you should be comfortable with. And if, if you know, if you, if you can uh, scoop that money out, fix it long-term, be happy with it, and, it's, and you're cash flowing, you know, the key is cash flowing. Um, as long as you're cash flowing and you're happy with that, and then now you're just using what, what I call OPM or other people's money. You're just borrowing from the bank off your own properties. But the key is, of course, making it work at more than uh, what you're borrowing. So, um, you know, it's a great way to harvest cash if that's the game you're in. Right. That's great. I've also heard Russell Gray talk about this, that if you have a loan against a property, it makes it less attractive for it to get sued or just that you have other creditors that would need that and you can redeploy to be able to go after to more effectively redeploy your capital. Um, I have a question here. Um, is it safer or would you prefer or what are some, I guess, comparisons between a multifamily fund versus a single multifamily invested deal? So one property versus a fund of many multifamily properties. Who has an opinion on that? I would just say that I think if you have a fund, which which um, we don't do, we do individual assets, but and I think it can be done well. I think Ken has, you know, I think Ken has a fund, right? So I think the challenge, I think sometimes though, for funds um, is there is an inherent inefficiency of capital. Um, you've got to deploy the capital uh, and you have to make a return on it. And so I think it sometimes, you know, uh, makes you buy things that you might not other otherwise buy or, uh, you know, just to try to hurry the process too much. So that's one of the reasons why I, I personally feel uncomfortable with it because I don't think that would be a good, something I'd be very good at. <laughs> I like to focus on things that, you know, you got one asset, how are we going to make the, this work and really um, maximize its performance? But that's, uh, that's my opinion. So. 
you know, we of course have both. So my history has been one-offs, you know, like box and, and um, you know, what I found with the fund was a couple things. One, um, you know, one, having that committed capital helps you when you're actually negotiating with the seller. So, you know, you think about a seller and you're trying to buy a $75 million deal and you're like, well, I have a fund and it's got committed capital in it and, you know, I can close tomorrow, put that on it later. I can, you know, whatever, you know, there's, there, you have a lot of options. The other thing is, um, you know, in hours, you, you could have four or five properties. So you might have one that's doing let's say 5% cash on cash, one that's doing eight, one that's doing two, one that's doing nine. And so you get the blended, you know, return from those, from all of those. And, and they're all, you know, it's diversification inside of, you know, one big fund. The negatives are the fees and some other things, of course. Um, you know, so we've done both and we've toyed around with both. We like both because, um, it enables you to maybe stretch for something that you might have a big value add on that has a lower cash on cash. So you might pair it with one that's eight or 9% cash on cash as an example, um, and has a really good return, but you can stretch for something that you, you know, maybe has an eight or $900, uh, rent lift in it. Uh, you might not see it for two or three years, but it will eventually catch up. So, um, so it's been, a it's been good for us. Um, you know, but the, you know, it's, it's, um, I think with us, we're probably going to continue that way moving forward just because it, 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 that gives us those kinds of benefits. All right. Thanks guys. Um, okay. So we have Garrett Lynch in the house, another Nighthawk. Uh, we've got the whole Nighthawk team here, apparently. Um, he's asking what debt products do you like, uh, most right now in new acquisition and refinances? Low rates. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Whoever gives you the best meat and it's non-recourse. Yeah. And you know, a little bit more leverage than 50%, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're really all very have, similar. And we may have to hold it longer than than we're used to with bridge, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's all pretty competitive, Bronson. You know, it really is. I mean. Uh, we're, we're doing a lot of interest only, you know, uh, products too, you know, so you can do, uh, uh, you know, three, five, seven, even 10 year IO or interest only, um, you know, so there's all kinds of stuff you can do. And we just, we, we try to pair it with the deal itself and, um, you, you know, and, um, and then we're backwards, you know, so I don't know, you guys probably do the same thing. You kind of take your deal. Then you put the debt on it and then you look at all the different kinds of debt and some of them work well, some of them don't. And, and then you negotiate. Uh, I want to thank uh, each of you guys for being here. This was awesome. This is a great chat. Really. I think for a lot of people getting value out of uh, what do I do right now? How do I, you know, find a great deal? What sort of things should I look for in evaluating deals? Each of you, tremendous, tremendous respect for each one of you for a lot of reasons. So just really appreciate each of you. I know a lot of people came from different, you know, they know Michael or they know Ken or they know Buck, but you should get on, uh, follow each other. You guys are just awesome leaders in the group. So love that. Uh, we also have our investor club. We're doing our deals, like I mentioned, in Jacksonville, Florida, lots of stuff happening there. We opened our ATM machine fund this week. Um, exciting stuff. 
wanted to share, we do deal, we do um, webinars like this every month. So last month we had Harry Dent and Lizette Zhang and Jason Hartman. We had a big uh, conversation about inflation. Next month on, I believe it's October 5th, we're gonna have Russell Gray and a guy named Jay Martin who's in the metal space and I'm working on somebody else. So we're gonna be doing that every month. Uh, let's go around real quick and just why don't we uh, just ask how people can follow you or what's something that uh, uh, you're working on that people can connect with you on. Let's start with Buck. Well, I, you, you have to follow up and tell me if Harry Dent still thinks that we're going to have deflation. <laughs> oh, he did. You should go watch the replay. It's, it's, it was like there was like screaming and shouting on it between him and Lizette. Awesome. It was really funny. <laughs> Great. Uh, so I, uh, you know, my where you can find me, I am a podcaster. Uh, I am an ex-surgeon. So a lot of people who are sort of high paid professionals um, who are interested in learning about personal finance, a little bit different than, um, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, um, uh, certainly, uh, would welcome you to tune in. It's called wealth formula podcast. And if you go to wealthformula.com, you can also learn more about, uh, me and there's an accredited investor group there. If you'd love, uh, if you'd like to, uh, to onboard as well. Awesome. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate that. Michael, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, if you're if you want to get started with syndications and you want to be active, we have some really cool downloads on uh, maybe an ebook and how to raise money, how to analyze deals. If you're interested in, in passive investing, we have a, an FAQ on syndications. We introduce you to syndications as well. We have a passive income calculator. All those things are in our what we call our freedom vault, which is at themichaelblank.com forward slash vault. And they're all in there. You can just uh, download them for free. We put everything in one place. And uh, our investment firm is called Nighthawk Equity. So if you're interested in investing in syndications, we'd love to have a conversation with you. And uh, yeah, we're at nighthawkequity.com. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for being here. Ken, how can people uh, get in touch with you and follow you? And I know you're everywhere, but what's the best way people can, can connect? Well, thank you, Bronson. First of all, thanks for putting this together. Um, so we have a podcast called the uh, Real Estate Strategies with Ken McElroy, and, and it's, it's doing very, very well with a couple hundred thousand downloads a month. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel that we just passed 300,000. So um, that's been great. Uh, KenMcElroy.com leads you to everything. Um, and, um, you know, we're, um, we're just trying to educate. I'm trying to make sure that if people are raising capital, that um, you know that they're making money and they're making their investors money. So that's been my passion. Uh, been in business 20 years, my partner and I, and uh, it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Well, thanks for being here, Ken. Really appreciate you, Buck, Michael. Um, thanks to all of you that joining. This was great. I we I think all of us would say that the best investment you can make is in your own education. So having conversations like this with great people is awesome. And there's the saying by Jim Rohn, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You spent time today with Ken McElroy, Buck Joffrey, Michael Blanc, and Bronson Hill. So anyway, uh, everybody have a wonderful night. This, this replay will be sent out. It'll also be available on YouTube. I look forward to seeing everybody next month. And uh, thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Bronson. Thanks, guys. Have a good thanks, evening, guys. everybody. Take care. Bye, guys. All right. Good. You've been listening to the Mailbox Money Podcast. For more free resources, articles, and videos, go to bronsonequity.com. There you can download your copy of the special report, The Single Best Investment Strategy During and After a Pandemic. None of the information shared here is an offer to buy a specific investment, and this is for educational purposes only. Consult your financial, legal, and tax professionals and use your own common sense before making any investment decisions. 
Thanks for joining us and be sure to tune in next time for more Mailbox Money.